Well, we're we on the last one. And I think that everybody should give themselves some good applause for reading through all the minor prophets. And probably you've read more than just these 12 books because there's a lot of background in a lot of the other books like Ezra, Nehemiah, Kings, Chronicles. So great job, everybody. Yay. I'm done. Okay. I'm done with the cheerleading. All right. So <laughs> we're on our final week. This says week 13. It's, it's whatever week. Whatever we are. Malachi. We don't, know, we don't know anything about Malachi, but I do think it's important to say that his name, Malachi, means my messenger. And so you might have that in a little footnote or something if you have a study Bible. And that is significant because when we get into, you know, like, uh, uh, I guess, second, third, fourth chapters, especially the fourth, um, God says, my messenger will come. I will send my messenger. This is a very significant figure. And so um, um, it's just interesting to note Malachi's name means my messenger. Same, same word as angel, too, in Hebrew. Yeah. Just FYI. My angel. That's right. what I call you. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> she doesn't. All right. So, <laughs> um, so I put together a very simple outline of Malachi. I think when we when you think of it as a book, um, his his main emphasis is on proper worship, because again, remember we're we're uh, along with uh, uh, Zechariah and Haggai, we're in the post-exilic, returned to the promised land and trying to get things going again as the people of God in the land. And the people have not been doing what they need to be doing. And so the primary focus for Malachi is on proper worship. So when, if we think about like walking through the book, uh, it's four chapters. First chapter, he really deals with the, the people of Israel uh, or Judah. So God entered, God sort of says, I entered into a covenant with you, covenant of holiness that's grounded in uh, grounded in the love of God, but it also is tied to reverence and obedience of the people toward God. Like that's the way the covenant is supposed to work. And then uh, coming out of that, then moving into chapter two, um, he criticizes or charges, God charges the priests with sin. And then also the men of Judah, the, the, the family leaders uh, of Judah. Uh, whose sin is actually being justified by the priesthood, probably idolatry, and we'll see some other sins. But, of course, the emphasis here is because God is holy, he requires a holy priesthood to lead the holy people in proper worship of the true God and in holy living. And so there's going to be some discussion about what should the priesthood look like and be. Chapter 3, then, uh, it moves into, after charging the people, reminding them of the covenant, the way they're supposed to be relating with God and with one another, then charging them with failure to do that, and primarily the priests, but also the men and the leadership. It moves into then, what is God's response to humanity? And chapter 3 says, God will purify the people himself, but that that purifying also includes judgment upon ungodliness 
and a requirement upon the people to faithful obedience. And then uh, he will preserve and uh, protect those who respond. And that leads into the final chapter, which is sort of like a reminder again, a final warning of impending judgment upon uh, all of humanity at the end. So again, preserve, uh, persevere to the end in faith is what he's encouraging the people to do by warning them. Well, so as we move into the book then, um, he starts out in verses uh, two through five of chapter one, and, and really all in chapter one, there are these sort of charges that God makes, and then the people ask the question, well, how have we done this? You know, how is this the case? And then God gives further explanation. So this is kind of a distinctive of Malachi. It doesn't happen like this in any of the other books. Right. So God says, I, he again, reminding them of the covenant, he starts out by saying, I have loved you. And then they ask, well, how have you loved us? And this is one of the more interesting parts of Malachi, which we really don't have time to elaborate too much. But when they ask, how have you loved us? He reminds them of Jacob and Esau. And this is a, a verse that the apostle Paul actually quotes in Romans 9. So it requires... A uh, pretty careful interpretation here, if you, if you understand Romans 9, Paul's allusion to it and quote of it to be in context with what Malachi says. Well, what does he say? He says, basically, well, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And he goes on to talk about them as individuals, but also as representative of nations. And so he says, both Jacob and Esau are sons of Isaac but God, God loves one and hates the other. Now, how is that the case? Why? Well, again, the allusion is to Jacob as Judah and Esau as Edom. Um, so despite both, were, both of those individuals being candidates for covenant blessings, God, uh, God's wrath abides on Esau, that is on Edom as a nation, why? Because of the evil committed against Judah, Jacob, right? Against Israel by the Edomites, as we described as discussed in Obadiah, right? In fact, in, in uh, verse 4 of chapter 1, he says, Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. See, it's, that's a national claim, right? Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And well, men will call them the wicked territory, right? So again, this is hearkening back to the prophecies and the oracles of Obadiah as a judgment on Edom that remains because of the way they treated. So the key here is that uh, this wrath points to God's glory beyond Israel. It's not just for Israel, as sometimes thought, but it speaks to God's holiness and justice in calling Jacob over Esau because of their faithlessness, Esau and his descendants. So it's not just some capricious choice by God for no reason. He has good reason, and the reason is grounded in, uh, in Edom's faithlessness. At least that's how Malachi is using it. Well, then in, in verses 6 through 14, there's a reminder of God's holiness 
and how and there's a charge against the people that they have despised his name so they ask in verse 6 how have we despised your name and the answer god says is this you give me the leftovers you give me the things that you won't even use for yourselves right the blind or the lame sacrifices and you keep the best for yourselves and of course this ignores God's commands in scripture regarding acceptable sacrifices. But it points to a deeper problem. Not only are they rejecting the commands in the Torah about a proper sacrifice, but it shows a heart issue, right? They're giving God kind of whatever's left, the, the scraps, um, as opposed to giving God what we should give him, which is the best, you know, our best. Um, so, he goes on to make a broader point in verse 11, for example, that even if you won't, you as my people who I've entered into this covenant relationship with, if you won't um, worship me properly, somebody will. And that's kind of a warning, isn't it? So in verse 11, for from the rising of the sun, even to the setting, my name will be great among the nations, right? That's like the Goyim, the, 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 the Gentiles, not the Goyim, that's a Greek word. But in every place, incense uh, is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure, right? And he goes on to say, the point is, again, if my people won't honor me, the ones I entered into a covenant with, then other people will, um, one way or another. And so just giving God our best is the point here. And he even says, you know, in these things, these, these terrible offerings that you give me, these half-hearted offerings, um, you know, if you took those to your governor, he wouldn't accept them. You'd, right. ne you'd never even think of taking those to like a human ruler, but you bring them to the ruler of the universe whose name is great in all the earth, right? So it's a very strong uh, indictment. He said, I wish you just, just shut the temple door so I don't have to see it because it makes me sick. You know, it's, it's a, a very strong indictment. Of course, the root of the problem are the, the priests are not doing what they're supposed to do. Now, again, all of this, Malachi sort of gives us more insight into the problems that uh, Israel was having after their return. Again, they returned in, uh, with rejoicing and glory to rebuild the temple, and, and it was supposed to be the, the restoration to the land, and yet the people fell into sin almost immediately. Um, so we've seen this in, in Haggai and now in, in Zechariah and now in Malachi as well. And here you have very specific religious complaints against the priests. And he contrasts the, the priests of, of Malachi's day with sort of an idealized priest uh, um, in, in the name of Levi, represented right? by Levi. Represented by Levi. Um, but you can see the language he uses. I, I put this on here just sort of to, to, to show how stark the contrast is and how bad it is with the priests. He says, uh, my curse is upon you in verse two. He says, uh, I'm going to turn your blessings into curses. So in other words, we might say that they, they are, prayers are ineffectual right? The, because they're not righteous, right? The prayers of a righteous man avail much, but the prayers of an unrighteous man do nothing. Um, and they may even be counterproductive. Uh, a curse upon your offspring, um, because probably because the priests are raising their children to be just as ungodly as them. 
And then, he, then it gets very stark. Uh, refuse on your face, <laughs> right? I'm going to throw, you know, feces on you. Uh, you're going to be taken away with the garbage. And, uh, and we even see that even the people don't respect the priesthood in verse 9. So what is their sin? Basically, their sin is uh, clarified in verses 10 through 17, but we see they've turned aside from the truth. They've caused the people to stumble, false teaching, and uh, turning the people towards, probably towards idols, as we'll see in just a moment. Are we going to say something? Okay. So... Uh, then he raises up the ideal priest, uh, sort of giving the standard. This is what the priest should look like. This is how we should evaluate our ministers. So we have the ideal priest there. Uh, <laughs> so um, maybe we're saying, what, should the, what is the standard, right? The covenant, uh, one who ministers or mediates the covenant of love and peace, a man who reveres the Lord, a man of sincere faith, uh, right, who truly trusts God, in verse 5, who speaks and teaches God's word to the people faithfully, right, as opposed to letting them offer bad sacrifices uh, and, uh, and not turning them away and saying, you know, follow God's word. A person who's honest, who seeks to lead the people in holiness and in a proper covenantal relationship with God, right? One who wants to see the people grow in faith and wants to disciple them. And I think it's nicely summarized in verse 7. The lips of the priest should preserve knowledge for he is the messenger, the malach of the Lord of hosts, right? So, uh, if you remember in the book of Revelation, when you have the letters at the beginning, they're, they're often translated to the angel of the church at Smyrna or whatever. The angel, it's the messenger, the priest. The priest is an angel of sorts for the people. Well, then in, uh, in verse 10, then, he continues his complaint and his charge uh, by appealing to our common creation and, and by appeal to the familial relations among all humans generally, and then the Israelis specifically, right? We're family. Why should we deal treacherously with one another? And, uh, and then in verse 11, he says, quickly, it turns out that the real betrayers are the priests, <laughs> right? Again, so it comes back to the priests. The language he uses uh, is the language of abomination. He says they are profane. The priests are, are guilty of leading the nation into idolatry yet again. So they were in exile because of idolatry, and now they've come back from exile, and within, 40, uh, within uh, 30 years, 20 years, they're engaging in idolatry again. Um, so the people are guilty, specifically the men, are guilty of idolatry, even though they were all sent back to build the temple of Yahweh, right, the Lord. Um, and in verse 11, he says to the men, you've married the daughter of a foreign god. And, uh, and of course, the men are married to women, uh, pagan women, or at least they're engaged, uh, engaged in um, relationships with the foreign women of sorts. So God says, I'm no longer accepting your sacrifices or your offerings in Israel, 
in uh, verses 12 and 13, because they're not acceptable and the people's hearts aren't right either, right? So it's not just that they are bringing uh, lame and blind animals, but their hearts are not right. And then in uh, verses 14 and 16, we, we see that the men in Israel have turned away from their wives and, uh, uh, and taken pagan women into their beds, and they've produced children with these women. And we see this addressed in Ezra and Nehemiah briefly, and the men are told to put the women out as part of a religious revival. Um, there's, now, there's a lot of interesting stuff we could talk about uh, in these interactions, um, and particularly ethics scholars have been interested in the implications of this putting out the far, foreign women for questions of divorce and remarriage. Uh, we don't have time to explore all the details of that. That takes quite a bit of time to unpack. But I do think it's worth making uh, a, couple of, a couple of points here. And I don't think I have them on the next, no. So the two points are, number one, Malachi uh, makes the case that there are clear spiritual implications in marriage and divorce, at least at a minimum, there are spiritual. The literal translation of verse 15 um, Verse 15, so if you're, if you're looking at your Bible, um, yeah, verse, yeah, verse 14 says, But cursed be the swindler who is made uh, in his flock and vows, but sacrifices a blanched animal to the Lord for, I'm sorry, no, I'm in the wrong chapter. Sorry, but no one, sorry, but no one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit, is what he says. So putting out, uh, marrying these uh, foreign wives. The literal translation seems to read that God made husband and wife one by a work of the Spirit, though there's some ambiguity. So the ESV, the, the uh, English Standard Version, reads this way, while the New American Standard, what I just read, does not. But both chastise the men for divorcing their godly wives. Do you have the ESV on your phone there? Yes. So just to read the ESV real quick. Sorry. I was, in, I was in Matthew. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Is that 15? Yeah, two, 15? Okay. Malachi 2.15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking godly offspring? So did you hear the language there? God made them one by a, by a portion of the spirit in their union. That's an interesting, you know, uh, way of understanding marriage. So marriage is, at least uh, in the literal translation here, is a spiritual union. Of course, Jesus says something similar to this when he says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And, and in, uh, the, the actual translation of the Greek says, no man may separate, which is like no man can separate what God has joined. Um, well, anyway, uh, so the, the either way, what he says is, that um, the men are being chastised for divorcing their godly wives and turning to pagan girls. And this is demonstrates shallow spiritual spirituality. The men don't have the spirit of God when they do this. It's like they see nothing wrong with marrying somebody outside the covenant, even though they're clearly told not to do that in Deuteronomy. And of course, this leads to the second point, which is why they were told not to marry into the foreign women. In Malachi's day, the key point is spiritual, 
uh, for Malachi, the pagan girls turn the men away from the true God, that is the Lord, Yahweh. And so the key here is that there's a lack of godly leadership and it, it traces back to the priests who are consecrating these marriages these or these false relationships in some way. And, and this sounds a lot like our own day in some ways, not our priests, but, uh, but some who are calling what is good bad and calling what is evil good, right? You even have people claiming to be Christian who are calling what is good bad, like uh, let's say when we challenge uh, homosexual marriage, and uh, people will say that's evil for us to do that, and uh, or challenging abortion, they'll say we're oppressing people, even Christians uh, or so-called Christian leaders, yet uh, calling what is good, that is the Bible, <laughs> bad. Um, well, moving into chapter three, God has a uh, a plan <laughs> to fix this problem of spiritual. Uh, shallowness, and he's going to send his messenger, his angel, his malachi, his malak. Uh, and this is going to be a messenger of the covenant in 3.1. Uh, and this messenger is going to be a refiner's fire, a fuller's soap, a cleanser, one who will purify the sons of Levi. And that purifying work includes some sort of seems to include some sort of disastrous event, uh, right? In verse two, he says, who can endure? Who can stand at his coming? Though it could, it could also mean, it may, and that, might, that might indicate judgment. It might also mean that no one can stand before him because no one is pure, right? We're all sinful, and, uh, and that may be the case as well. But the messenger's coming, we're told, Will, uh, will immediately proceed some kind of judgment of God upon godlessness, and particularly in Israel, in verses 5 through 7. Of course, the judgment upon sin was Christ's work, um, and that judgment began with his first coming, right, with his, uh, his conquering of the power of death, uh, the, the power of sin in his death, the conquering of the power of death in his resurrection. But of course, his, uh, his judgment of sin will be completed at his second coming when uh, just before the whole creation is recreated and there will be no more death and no more suffering and no more sin. Well, right after this, then he turns to a discussion of tithes and offerings uh, God charges the people with, with thievery uh, that when they withhold a proper worship uh, uh, offering or tithe. And of course, this is in verses 8 through the beginning of 10. And he goes on to say then, I'm sovereign, God says, I am sovereign over the crops. I can grant you success. Uh, so, the, in other words, the tithe is nothing for him in terms of his needs. Uh, he can give you more than you could ever spend uh, if he so chose. Um, and so God will, uh, God is the one who gives us this. So when we give back to him, it's an act of worship on our part. It's not like he needs it. But God will also, he says, he will protect against the devourer in verse uh, 
A. Um, and of course, this could have a spiritual as well as physical meaning. One, he could be talking spiritually about Satan, and uh, in the physical meaning, he could be talking about protecting against insects and locust plagues and things like that. Um, but he says, what, what will happen is if you, prop, if you engage in proper worship, I'll bless you, and all peoples and nations will see and will call you blessed. And of course, this speaks to the missionary aspect of God's blessings and of God's people. Everybody saw my bookmark, right? <laughs> this is just a little thing to help us put Malachi's teaching into practice. And she doesn't just use it as a bookmark. We use it to put checks in. So just to clarify that. <laughs> All right. Um, in, uh, notice I wrote there, uh, uh, the tithe is a recognition then of God's sovereignty, right? Again, of his sovereignty over the whole creation, over the whole of earth, over our finances, um, then in, in uh, verses 13 through 15, I think uh, I, I, I felt like I had to say this. The tithe is not a down payment on future blessing. It's like a warning against what many today we, we might call the prosperity gospel, which suggests a reason for serving God is the blessings we get. And, uh, and of course, that's not the case, right? We should serve God because of who he is. And although in verse 11, he promises to protect against the devourer, and in verse 12, he says he will grant success and blessing, those are not the reasons we should serve and we should worship him. And the reason is because he is God, right? So, all right, at the the last part of the book, I would say beginning in verse 16 of chapter 3 on into the end of the book, I see this as final warnings and admonitions. Um, so in verse 16 and 17, he talks about a book of remembrance that he's going to consult at the judgment. Um, right? Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. To me, this sounds a lot like the Lamb's book of life in the book of Revelation, which will be opened, and those whose names are written will be saved. Those whose names are not in the book of life will be condemned. Um, this sounds a lot like that. So again, a final exhortation. There's a book, and it's going to be consulted, and you want your name in it. Um, and then he moves to talking about his judgment and final blessing. We see in Malachi then that the final judgment is going to be a judgment of fire, but there's also sort of an ex exhortation of a son of righteousness coming with healing in his wings in, uh, in verse 2. And so, uh, so there is, uh, or is 12? Two. 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 So there is um, still blessing being offered as well as judgment being uh threatened. Uh, and then at the end, it, he, he points us to Moses' book of the law. Again, remember, the whole of the book is on proper worship. Proper worship has to be grounded in God's word. And for uh, them, that was to get back to the Torah and Moses' book of the law. Notice he also gives us an interesting promise about just at the end, behold, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet um, so we have Moses' book of the law and Elijah the prophet here right at the end for uh, proper worship. Think about the transfiguration of Jesus. Who appears there with Jesus speaking? 
Moses and Elijah, right? Again, the, 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 uh, the book of the law and the prophets. Um, but also this promise of Elijah the prophet uh, raises some interesting questions for us in terms of the New Testament because we're told before the end, Elijah will return. And uh, this, what, there was a, a lot of, uh, let's say, interest in the end at the time of Christ's ministry. Um, there was, it seems like there was uh, uh, more demonic activity taking place. There was uh, messianic expectation. And so people asked, John the Baptist, uh, if he was Elijah. And interestingly enough, John said, no. Yet Jesus tells his disciples, if you're willing to accept it, this is in Matthew 11, if you're willing to accept it, uh, John was Elijah who was to come. And then he says this, he who has ears, let him hear. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing. I'm the kind of person I like, I read this and I think, okay, how do you reconcile this, right? It's immediately you have, are you, John, are you Elijah? No. Is this Elijah? Yes. Well, which is it? Of course, it's yes and no. How do we make sense of this? Well, reconciling these claims is usually made by reference to the principle we have seen throughout the minor prophets that with the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, there is an initial fulfillment of prophecies uh, and an inauguration, sort of like a beginning of the end times. But also, there's still a final and more complete fulfillment of prophecies at the very end of the age, just before God recreates everything, right? Just before what we call the consummation of God's creative work. Or you might call it the culmination of God's grand plan for the creation and the universe that we mentioned at the very beginning of our 15 weeks. And this, of course, is identified with the second coming of Christ. So how do we understand John the Baptist? He is an initial fulfillment of this promise inaugurating Christ's ministry and inaugurating the end times right, with the coming of Christ. So we are living in the end times from the time of Jesus until God completes his creative work at the very end. And there will be evidently a final fulfillment later, perhaps in one of the two witnesses of Revelation 11 that we talked about a little bit last week. And also the way that John the Baptist describes the, the mission and the work of Jesus, it's in the kinds of terms that we see also in, um, in Malachi. It's uh, in terms of, of judgment and fire. Um, he says in Matthew 3, 11, um, oh gosh, he who is coming after me is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's a cleansing imagery. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he, was, he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So that threshing is an image of judgment. And so it's the very same themes that we have at the very end of Malachi in Matthew, which, you know, in our Bible follows right after to make that connection, I think. And you can see the melding of the, of the first coming and the second coming, even in John's preaching, like Stefana just read. The, the baptizing with the Holy Spirit and fire 
on the one hand is a reference to, of course, Pentecost and the, the tongues of fire appearing above the disciples and the, and the indwelling of the Spirit in us. But on the other hand, it also, the language of fire, does evoke the final judgment imagery that we see in the book of Revelation and at the end when all of the earth will be judged by fire and ultimately those whose names are not in the book of life will be cast in the lake of fire as will death and Hades at the end and then there will be no more death and God will come and dwell on the new uh, earth in the new Jerusalem with humanity. Well, anyway, this isn't a study of the book of Revelation. We have one more thing to do and that is the review and closing thoughts in the last, say, Ten, five, ten minutes. I don't know how so we just, what we thought we would do is just walk through, just reminding us, what have we talked about in these many weeks? So I'm just going to walk through uh, slide by slide through each of the prophets. So first one, Obadiah. When you think of Obadiah, think judgment on Edom and Esau. And what were the key ideas we saw there? Well, we saw that uh, one of the key ideas is God is faithful to his covenant promises to Israel, right? He hasn't forgotten, uh, he hasn't forgotten his promise. God will judge those who work against his plan and reject uh, f the faith, the faith in God, who reject him. And, of course, that's epitomized in Edom. And the day of the Lord, right, this sort of future day of the Lord is a day of judgment upon both the immediate hearers, there is a day of Lord on them, and then also a future day of wrath on sinful humanity. Joel, if you remember, it was the one with the locusts and all the creepy crawlies that we saw in the video. Uh, the locust plague then was a, uh, a symbol of the day of the Lord. The, the plague coming itself was a day of the Lord on uh, the nation but also it, pre it figures or prefigures a future day of the Lord, a future day of judgment upon, again, sinful humanity. Uh, Joel made the point that repentance and faith are the key for his people. Forgiveness and healing uh, and grace are offered by God, right? Um, but there will be also a final war at the end, some kind of war among men. Uh, maybe the righteous against the unrighteous. We're not told too much in Joel, but there will be a final war. And ultimately, God's blessing is poured out on Israel uh, because of God's faithful uh, covenant faithfulness to his promises to Abraham. So Jonah, of course, that one everybody knows, but again, the fish and Nineveh, right? So you want to say some of these? Well, again, it's just uh, the idea, too, that we see in other prophets that uh, God is sovereign over all nations, and God is compassionate towards all nations as well, and offers them um, a chance by, you know, in this case, sending his prophet. Um, uh, God is wrathful towards sin, but merciful and patient with humans. Um, repentance and faith, again, we have this, uh, this theme. Um, and we have the sign of the resurrection, the sign of Jonah, that gives us a tie to uh, the teachings of Jesus and to the New Testament. I'm going to move this <laughs> up a little bit. Yeah, I'm going to move us all around here. Okay, so now Amos, uh, I wrote social justice, um, but God's, right, God's concern for the poor and the weak. 
the day of the Lord is a day of judgment on Israel for idolatry, but also a day of judgment on the nations for their sins against Israel, who God is judging. <laughs> so, uh, right, because working against his plan. Um, and then, uh, of course, uh, Amos reminds us that God's covenant has not failed, even though there's going to be an impending exile. And then uh, love God and love your neighbor sums up uh, the Torah. Oops. I have to do it manually. All right. Hosea. 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 This is where we get a window into God's family, you know, and the family relationship there. And um, of, yeah. And of course, the key idea is Israel is unfaithful and God is long suffering in pursuing her. Right. So while God will reject his people for a season, he still uh, is loving, compassionate and merciful. And he will grant mercy and forgiveness when repentance is shown. So it's not just God as a husband uh, with his unfaithful wife. We also have the image of God as a loving father with his rebellious son, Israel. That also then ties with a messianic prophecy um, about the uh, flight to Egypt of the Holy Family. So God's, uh, yeah, so God's judgment, when God judges us and judgment falls upon us, it is not just to, uh, to, appe to merely appease his wrath, but it's also got a restorative function that should drive us to repentance. That's the, the purpose behind that judgment as well. Um, so God's covenant stands despite the Assyrian uh, captivity. You see that there. And, and again, the, the imagery of resurrection comes up again, uh, both as a, uh, a reference to national restoration, but also personal salvation. All right, Micah. Uh, we put this as uh, the, sort of the key is God's requirements because, uh, because of that verse that says, what does God require of you? But justice, loving kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. But of course, there's, there's more in Micah as well. The Assyrian captivity is, uh, again, a judgment for sins of idolatry and the lack of love shown to neighbor. Um, we see in Micah some messianic imagery, both that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem, also that the Messiah possibly will be beaten. Uh, that was uh, the indication of being beaten, the messenger or the, the the messenger will be beaten with a rod. Uh, the Messiah also, though, will inaugurate this time of restoration. So you can, when you see that in Micah, you can understand why the disciples said, will you now restore your kingdom, <laughs> right? Um, but they failed to recognize that it precedes the time of world peace that comes right after a great war. And there wasn't a great war yet in Jesus' own day. So the disciples missed that part. Um, again, God is faithful to his covenant and to his covenant promises and to his people, um, Abraham's descendants. Nahum. So fall of Assyria. So again, we have Nineveh as with Jonah. Um, there's the idea that God uses evil men to judge sinners and then judges those evil men for their sins. John wrote this. <laughs> this comes up in um, 
in uh, Habakkuk as well. Uh, again, God is faithful to his covenant. He has covenant love. God is merciful and gracious. And at the same time, God is just and holy. And so the, the, the fall of Assyria is seen as judgment from God upon Assyria because of their ill treatment of Israel, their rejection of him as Lord, and their, well, all around being nasty people. <laughs> That's right. Zephaniah on the day of the Lord and the Lord rejoicing over us in song. And that lovely passage, the chiasm. Um, so again, God is holy and will judge his people and the nations. Um, one day all will gather in Jerusalem to worship the Lord, uh, again, in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, with the, which again shows God's faithfulness that's long lasting. And finally, we have a, a classic a chapter on uh, the day of the Lord, uh, the judgment of the world by fire. Habakkuk questioning the Lord. Uh, I put that because of the way he engages God. You know, why do you make me look on this evil? Why do you tolerate this? What, what do you, when are you going to work? When are you going to act? Um, and of course, the key ideas in Habakkuk are the righteous shall live by faith. Quoted in the New Testament, right? The, one of the key, uh, uh, the key phrases Paul uses to explain the gospel. Um, but again, the, the questioning of God and then God's answers. I'm merciful, uh, but also just. I'm gracious and holy and always lovingly patient. And God will accomplish his purposes uh, for Israel as a nation, for uh, for all of human history and for the created order. God says, uh, you may, you know, you may wonder when I'm going to start working, but I will. I know what's going on. I see it and I'm going to do this. And what I'm going to do, it's good. It's beyond, it's going to blow your mind. It's beyond what you can comprehend. And from the very beginning with Adam and Eve to the very end, it's all going to come together. Even in the middle of the pandemic, God already knows what he's doing. And he's doing something, and so don't be don't be discouraged. Haggai, build the temple. That's, <laughs> Get to that's work. pretty much it. <laughs> that's right. That's pretty much it. Uh, but obviously, the key ideas is they they should you know he wants them to rebuild the temple um, because he wants the people to be faithful in worshiping him appropriately and properly. God was faithful to restore them from exile. He was merciful in letting them to re return. So now they have an obligation to him. But Haggai also points to a future when all people will worship the Lord in Jerusalem. This is part of why building the temple becomes important because it's, in, it's, uh, an, it's important because Jerusalem is important symbolically as the locus of God's uh, sovereign rule in the future. Um, and of course, God will protect Israel and judge the godless nations as they seek to undermine their work. Right. Zechariah, that the book that kicked our butts. Um, the Did night visions. I, oh, I'm not said? sure. Sorry. It <laughs> really overwhelmed us. It was extremely challenging. That's better. Thank you. Um, the night visions about the first Okay, don't look so surprised <laughs> over there. <laughs> okay, go ahead. The night visions um, 
uh, about half the book is taken up there. Um, but the, uh, um, the idea that God's blessing is on um, the leadership of the nation, the people who have been tasked to build the temple, as we saw in Haggai, that um, by his spirit, not by might or by power, but by my spirit. So a focus on um, the sovereignty of God's spirit and what God is going to do, that God is going to provide the power and the energy and the possibilities um, and the resources for them to build um, what he has commissioned them to rebuild. So um, there's also a, a big focus on cleansing. And so, you know, kind of what we've discussed today on um, in Micah, there's also this focus in Zechariah for the people who have been defiled by being in a foreign land. Um, now they're back home. Now they're back to worshiping their God. Um, they need to build the temple properly. They need to set up the worship properly. Um, they need to worship him in the way that he asks for, you know, kind of like um, on Sunday when uh, Pastor Chris was preaching out of Exodus 19, that we need to worship God in the way that he asks, do it, do it the right way. And we can see in um, Malachi that they're not doing it the right way. And so that's one of the reasons that Ezra um, comes to teach people the law. So um, what else? The Messiah, lots of well, messianic prophecies. Go ahead. You're, well, okay. All I was going to say is that, the, is that so in, in Zechariah, you have cleansing. You have God is doing the cleansing. You have the imagery of, of the priest and the godly king who are uh, the key uh, where the, the the spirit of God is pouring into them, and they're and and they're the keys to um, to the restoration of God's people, and of course the Messiah is the King and Priest, right? Both, and um, you have images of judgment, but you also following the image of judgment with the, for example, the horsemen. You also have them reporting that all is at peace. So you have promise of. A, uh, a final state of peace in the, in the created order. Uh, as we said, Malachi, uh, Judah, Judah as epitomized in the priesthood is turned away from God to idols. God provides a messenger for cleansing and restoration. While there is still a judgment that could come upon them, the key uh, for Malachi is faith and turning to the Lord and proper worship. And then God will, of course, be merciful and accept his people. The last couple of things that we wanted to do, last two slides, I'm just going to move it again here, uh, are some broad themes and then some New Testament themes, and then we'll be done. So the themes, uh, you can read them, so I, I feel kind of bad like we're just reading the, the slide, but I, I really tried to put these on here so you can see the people are sin. People are sinful and unfaithful, like Israel and, like and Judah and the rest of us. Uh, God is true to His covenant promises. He will restore Israel so that all people, all nations, can be justified. God is holy and just and patient and merciful and gracious to those who truly repent. Um, and then God will provide. And then we see in the prophets a servant, a messenger, a branch. Uh, one who offers grace, cleansing to all, but also one who does bring judgment on those who refuse to turn and believe. And at the end, God will judge godless humanity, and then he will restore his creation and enter into eternal peace. 
and relationship with him. Last, New Testament themes in the minor prophets. Some things we see, these are sort of, this is a bit repetitive, but again, things we see in the New Testament. All peoples can participate in the Abrahamic covenant blessings. We saw that in the minor prophets. All people get to participate with, uh, with Abraham in the blessings. The Messiah is a priest king. The Messiah is the sacrifice and the one who purifies. Uh, we have salvation by grace through faith. Yeah, even in the Old Testament, it's not just by, you know, animal sacrifices. It's always by grace through faith. That's not just a brand new New Testament insight. And that's, and that's of course, that's Paul's point <laughs> in appealing to Abraham. It goes back to Abraham, uh, right? And the same thing in Hebrews, right? And along with salvation, a part of salvation, a continuing part of salvation then is sanctification. And God is the only one who can do that because over and over the people are told to cleanse themselves and purify themselves and, you know, um, be right with God. And they just can't. They couldn't before the exile they couldn't even when they saw Israel exiled and they couldn't when they came back. You know, that's what we just finished doing with Malachi. They can't, only God can do the cleansing. So just to throw some, some uh, theology words out here, God justifies, he declares us not guilty. God sanctifies, he makes us holy and God glorifies. He completes his work in us at the end by giving us new bodies and making us pure. Uh, so that we can live with him in eternity. Um, well, one of the things it doesn't, it doesn't make it as clear in the minor prophets, but you can deduce this, is that the Messiah is God himself, because it's God who saves, God who purifies, and yet the Messiah is also the one who purifies, and it's a man. So interestingly, we see indicated, at least hinted at in the minor prophets, the doctrine of the incarnation. So it's not something, it's not some doctrine that the Apostle Paul just made up out of thin air uh, or borrowed from Greek mythology. It's in the Old Testament, uh, though not as clearly. It's again, like we said, it's, um, it's like uh, God is uh, progressively revealing his plan over time, and it becomes more and more clear over time. But we do see also in the Minor Prophets, we see a resurrection hope. And ultimately, of course, we see in the Minor Prophets the promise that God is going to bring his creation to its final completion. From what he started, was uh, he will finish. And um, yeah, and that's it. He'll finish and we finish too. And we're finished. <laughs>